Discover the tips and strategies that will help you achieve your retirement goals. I'm your host, James Canole, and this is the podcast dedicated to helping you retire well. It all starts right here on Ready for Retirement. Welcome back to another episode of Ready for Retirement. I'm your host, James Canole. And we have a listener question today that's about, well, it's about a lot of things, as most real-life questions are. A lot of these episodes I do, they're kind of one-off things, whether it's on taxes, or maybe it's on investments, or maybe it's on safe withdrawal rates, or anything like that. But in reality, your question, what you're planning through, what you're trying to create, isn't just how do I invest better or reduce taxes or where do I pull funds from first or what about social security? It's how do each of these things impact each other and how do I put a strategy in place that makes sure I'm maximizing all of these variables, not just optimizing for one variable at the cost or at the expense of everything else. So in today's podcast, we're going to explore that listener question and we're going to see how do all these different types of things, how do all these different variables impact one another in going into a decision. Before we get started, though, I want to recently or want to highlight a recent review. So whenever you all leave me a review on iTunes or on Apple Podcasts, really appreciate that and want to highlight that. So this comes from Guitar Man Brian. He says, this podcast doesn't waste time with simplistic advice or silly asides. He gives well thought out, in-depth answers to the questions posed. He makes me want to call my financial advisor and ask questions to better prepare my portfolio for my future. If I am ever dissatisfied with my advisor, I would definitely consider hiring him to take over. Thank you, Brian. Really appreciate that. And I thank you for taking the time to leave the review, that five-star review. And if you're listening and haven't done so already and have been enjoying the episodes, would appreciate if you would do that as well. So with that being said, let's jump into the question that today's episode will be based upon. This question comes from Lori, and she says the following. Lori says, I've appreciated your clear and comprehensive explanations for many areas in retirement planning. I would love to hear more about planning for the gap between retirement and secure income. And in parentheses, she says secure income, meaning I'm a teacher and I will have a pension and social security. My husband will also have social security. In parentheses. One scenario we're looking at has a three-year gap between earned income and collecting my pension. I would be 59 and my husband would be 65 with plans for him to collect social security at 67 and me at 70. We're hoping to do some Roth conversions during this time as well. Can you please share some suggestions for people during the gap years related to these issues? Number one, if you have enough secure income when the gap is complete to cover expenses, how can a couple maximize comfort taking advantage of the go-go years and determining a withdrawal rate? Number two, with secure income from a pension and social security, what strategies can be used to determine the added income needed to keep pace with inflation? My pension has a 1% to 1.5% cost of living adjustment, so how do we take if inflation into account with that? to account for or to maintain the retirement account withdrawals to keep up with that. Then number three, is there a good target balance to achieve between taxable, tax-deferred, and Roth accounts heading into RMDs to determine Roth conversion strategies? Thank you for considering this topic. Well, Lori, thank you for your question. And I I, I like exploring actual case studies because, again, none of this is ever going to be specific advice or recommendations. But as we go through this, what we'll start to see is it's never as simple as just addressing the immediate question, because if the question has to do with withdrawal rates, well, what you do to maximize withdrawal rates might have a negative impact on taxes. So how do we do that in light of that? Or what you do to minimize taxes might change how you're thinking about Social Security. And the way you're thinking about Social Security might maximize rate of return, but does it miss the point of maximizing the return on life or the non-financial 
aspects. So let's explore this. And before we jump in, if you haven't already done so, please be sure to check us out on YouTube. We have all these recordings and then some on YouTube. So make sure to check us out there at Root Financial Partners. So back to the episode here. Here's just a quick overview of the situation. Lori and her husband, they're going to retire and they're going to have pension and social security income. And from what I can tell, that pension and social security income will be enough to cover just about all, if not all, of their expenses once all those income sources are coming in. The problem is that income doesn't start right away, and it's going to be somewhat staggered. It seems as if the pension and then her benefit and her husband's benefit all will start at different times. So how does this impact their withdrawal strategy, knowing that they'll need a bunch more right away, but then maybe an increasingly lesser amount once outside income starts to kick in. And also, how should their withdrawal rate factor in? Inflation, knowing that pension income and potentially social security doesn't fully keep up with inflation. How do they think about that? So let's go through each point that Lori laid out. She laid out three specific points. We'll just address them one by one. But first, I wanted to find gap years. Some people have different ideas of what gap years means. They think about it a little bit differently. So I want to make sure we're on the same page with the language I'm using as we go through this. Some people think of the gap years as years before age 59 and a half. So AKA the years before they retire and before they can actually access money from their IRAs without penalty. So they think of those are the gap years. So I need this gap fund or a bridge fund or something to fill in when I retire and when I'll actually be able to live on some of my retirement accounts. Others think of it more as the years before outside income kicks in. So I retire and maybe I can fully access my IRAs, but I still don't have pension coming in yet. I don't have social security coming in yet. I don't have other income sources coming in yet. This is the definition that we're going to be looking at today. So with income coming in, the gap years is those years before social security or pension are fully kicking in. So with that, let's look at the first part of Lori's question. See, she says this, she says, if you have enough secure income when the gap is complete, so in other words, when Social Security and pension have fully kicked in. How can a couple maximize comfort taking advantage of the go-go years and determine a withdrawal rate? So in other words, she's saying, look, if we have enough income, once all of this starts, once we have our full Social Security, once we have the full pension, how does that shape what we should be doing with our portfolio, knowing that the go-go years that she's referencing means most people tend to spend a lot more money up front in retirement than they do in the middle or even the latter side of retirement. So... On paper, at least, if you could spend what you need to spend in those gap years, so Lori's got three gap years in the example she used, and if you can spend what you need from your portfolio to bridge that gap, then on paper, you could spend whatever you want to spend after that. Because on paper, Social Security and pension is covering all the essential living expenses that you have, so you don't necessarily need to be all of that strategic in terms of how you're pulling money out. Now you want to plan and think through it because you want to make sure that you're having money allocated to the different things that you want to do. But on paper, you're in a safe place because your pension and social security would generate everything you need to keep living comfortably. So you'll need to make sure you understand how much you'll want to spend in those first three years. So in those gap years, and you'll probably want to make sure that you have enough money in a conservative investment to ensure you can cover those years, regardless of what the market does. And then see how much leftover there will still be for your portfolio. So I have no idea Lori's total portfolio value. I don't know her expenses. There's a bunch of details I don't know. But if I look at this, I would say those three gap years where you're going to be fully dependent upon your portfolio or on savings to meet your income needs before outside income kicks in. Do those three years take up half of your portfolio? 
Do they take up 20% of your portfolio, 80% of your portfolio? You know, for example, if you have $100,000 per year that you need from your portfolio, well, if that's per year, multiply that by three, you need $300,000 to cover that gap year or those gap years. Well, if your portfolio is, say, $600,000, half of it needs to be allocated just for those first three years to get to the point where Social Security and pension kick in. So whatever that amount is, maybe those three years or that portion of your portfolio to cover the gap years represents a significant portion of your overall portfolio. Maybe it represents just a small portion of your overall portfolio. But on paper, whatever's left over after that. So first goal is bridge those gap years. Whatever's left after that, you can maximize or you can spend to maximize the go-go years that she's referring to once retirement has started. Now, I keep saying on paper. Why am I saying on paper? Does on paper translate differently than in reality? Yeah, in many ways it does. So in paper, on paper, it looks that way. But in reality, here's some other things. This isn't maybe a comprehensive list, but here's some other things off the top of my head that you might want to consider. Number one, the first thing is how confident are you in your budget? Does pension and social security truly cover everything? Some people go into retirement and I'll meet with them and they'll have a budget and they say, look, James, we can retire and spend $2,000 per month. And so well, where'd that number come from? I say, oh, well, we just added up the credit card bills for the last month. And when we actually look at it, we say, okay, well, that's the credit card bills. But what about things that aren't being paid for on the credit card? Or what about health insurance premiums? Or what about other things that you're not taking into account? And what about actually not just looking at last month's expenses, but understanding what will expenses actually be when you're retired? And it's not uncommon for living expenses to be double or more what they actually think they're going to be if they just do a very rough draft budget with the expenses they can think of off the top of their head. There's a lot of little expenses that we don't think of. They're not definitely not top of mind sometimes, but we have to factor them into our budget. So number one, Lori, I'd say, how confident are you in your budget? And does pension and social security truly cover those expenses on a monthly basis? If you're confident in your budget and you understand the amount that will be coming from pension and social security and you say, yes, pension and social security could comfortably cover everything, well, then wonderful. And I would say you probably have more freedom to spend more money out of your portfolio without having to worry as much about will this money last a long time versus do I spend it down sooner than later. If not confident, though, then I would certainly be a lot more cautious. I would not draw too much out of your portfolio too early. I would be a little bit more cautious because what you'll get a sense for is those first couple few years of retirement, you can actually see not just do I think social security and pension will cover everything, but are they actually starting to cover everything? And now the risk of that is you probably won't have a really good sense until three years into retirement once social security and pension have fully kicked in. But once they do kick in, you'll, you'll get a very clear sense of are they actually covering all of our expenses or do we find ourselves consistently pulling extra money from savings or from investments to supplement that? So wait to see what that looks like if you're not fully confident in your budget, because if you're not and expenses actually tend to be a little bit more, you certainly don't want to spend down your portfolio too much during those go-go years and then not have enough to be, meet basic living expenses throughout the remainder of your retirement. And then another thing I would ask about this, and Lori, this is maybe specific to you. I know that you said you have a pension and you've been a teacher. Are you subject to the windfall elimination provision? So if you have something that's called a non-covered pension, where you're receiving pension benefits for years of service, where you weren't paying into Social Security, what's going to happen is whatever that pension amount is, it will reduce the actual amount that you'll be receiving from Social Security. 
So different districts, different states are very different when it comes to this. So that's another thing I would check. Just confirm that the amount you're planning for in Social Security won't actually be a lesser amount because of the pension benefit you're receiving. But if that's the case, then go along with this. And the major part is how confident are you in your budget? Number two, and this really ties into it, the second thing I would consider is how much margin do you have for error? Because what a lot of people do sometimes get right in their retirement budgeting is they have a very clear sense, if they've done it well, of what their monthly expenses are, but it's the one-off stuff that tends to bust the budget. So it could be things like travel. It could be things like property taxes. It could be things like, oh my gosh, I didn't consider that I would still need to buy a new or used car every so often in retirement. And it's those big expenses that tend to bust the budget because on a monthly basis, they're able to pay for groceries. They're able to pay for utilities. They're able to pay for clothing and food and whatever it is. But then those one-off things come around and totally bust the budget. So when I ask how much margin do you have for error, understand there's probably going to be some things that you're missing when you do your initial budget. Unless you've been extremely thorough and gone through this, and I'm not saying you can't, a lot of people can do this very well, but most people don't have a perfectly precise budget. So make sure there's some margin for error baked in, where if you look at your budget and it's not super dialed in and you say, okay, I think social security and pension are going to cover everything, build in a margin for error, meaning ideally you're planning for some extra miscellaneous expenses, or you're planning that whatever you budgeted for entertainment will actually be more, or you're planning that whatever you budgeted for travel will actually be more. So take those things into account to make sure that your budget doesn't just perfectly cover everything based upon what's coming in from social security and pension, but there's a margin for error, understanding that there will probably be some things that are missing from your budget, or there'll probably be some things that you're underestimating how much it'll actually cost in retirement. All right, another thing I would want you to consider before just fully feeling free to spend all money without regard in those go-go years is our legacy goals are important. If so, then don't spend everything. This thing's pretty self-evident of if you have a desire to leave money for children or charity or grandchildren or whatever it is, well, you can't just treat your portfolio as a piggy bank that you can fully withdraw. You want to make sure that you have an understanding of how much do you need to make sure is set aside for other goals. It could be legacy or it could be otherwise. It could be if you decide to move homes and you want to buy something that's more expensive. It could be if you want to send grandchildren to college or it could be if you want to invest in something that's more expensive, you know, a boat, a car, whatever it might be. Make sure that you don't spend everything. Number four, another consideration is do you have equity in your home? If so, then I would say that would give you more permission and flexibility to spend more because you could always use your equity as a backup plan. If not, if you don't own a home or if you don't have a bunch of equity in a home, again, that just means there's less margin for error because you don't have that plan B, which is the equity in your home you could live on if things went south or if things didn't turn out as planned. A fifth thing is, are you concerned about protecting against inflation? And I guess, by the way, it doesn't really matter whether you're concerned about it or not. Inflation is going to do what it does, whether or not it's a concern of ours or not. But do you want to make sure you're keeping up with inflation? If so, and I know this will tie into another part of this question, you don't want to fully blow through all of your portfolio during those go-go years because you might not be able to keep up with inflation in the latter years. A sixth thing to consider is do you have long-term care insurance? If so, And if that insurance premium fits in your budget and you have some margin for error, knowing that that insurance premium could potentially go up, well, then you can feel free to spend more during those go-go years without running the risk of not having portfolio assets down the road if you don't have long-term care insurance and have some type of a long-term care event. 
But if you don't have long-term care insurance, then you maybe need to maintain, you probably need to maintain a part of your portfolio as self-insurance. You could look at home equity in this case. You could look at portfolio equity in this case, but you need something set aside that's continuing to grow for you that you're not really touching for spending that will be there for you if there's extra expenses down the road. Another thing to consider is would you actually feel financially secure with just a pension and social security? Here's what I mean by that. A lot of people say, you know what, James, here's our portfolio. We want to retire and I really want to bounce my last check. You know, in other words, don't care so much about leaving money to family or legacy or anything like that. I want to bounce my last check, meaning I have fully spent down everything I've saved for. Now I get the sentiment, but to do that, you would actually need to know your exact expenses, the exact day you're going to die if you really want to do that perfectly. Because if you balance your last portfolio check before you're done living, you have to ask yourself, would you feel financially secure or would that give you a sense of dread or panic or just not really feeling fully financially secure? If you could fully survive off your pension and social security and it wouldn't cause you to feel any panic or you wouldn't lose that sense of financial peace if you didn't have your portfolio, gives you more permission to spend more up front, enjoy more up front, not worrying about the latter years as much. But even if you felt your pension and social security could cover everything, if you still feel as if you wouldn't have that peace of mind without having some portfolio assets, almost like an emergency fund for your retirement, well, then I probably would focus on not fully spending everything down. And then finally, the last consideration with this part of the question, and maybe the most important part, is what are the survivor options on your income sources? Too many people, when they look at retirement, they look only at expenses while both spouses are living and only at income when both spouses are living. When one spouse is no longer living, both income and expenses tend to change. So Social Security, it's pretty straightforward. If you're both collecting and one spouse predeceases the other, then the surviving spouse will collect the larger of the two Social Security benefits, either their own if it's larger or their deceased spouses as a survivor benefit. With the pension, this is going to vary based upon what type of pension option you're selecting. Is there a survivorship option? Is it a single life annuity? Is it some combination of the two? Make sure you're checking on that because maybe you are able to meet all of your needs and, and do so very comfortably when that full pension benefit is coming in and when both social security benefits are coming in. But let's say the spouse with the pension passes away. Well, the surviving spouse, if there wasn't any survivorship option on the pension, loses that pension and they lose one of the social security benefits. Not only that, but now their standard deduction is cut in half, meaning they don't have as much deductions on their taxes, so they're going to end up paying more in taxes too. So if you're not also taking this into account, then things could be perfectly comfortable while you're both living. But if one spouse predeceases the other, especially early on in retirement, then that leaves the other spouse, the surviving spouse, with a tremendous amount of risk where they're going to need some portfolio assets to supplement what their remaining income will be at that time. So I know that was kind of a, a longer way of looking at this first part of the question, but on paper, yes, Lori, to answer your question, if you can cover those first three gap years and after that outside income is covering all of your expenses, on paper, you are free to spend your portfolio however you please. Go blow it on vacations. Go blow it on a bunch of other things. And when I say blow it, I mean, yeah, use it. Use it for what's intended to do. But when we actually look at real life, there are some other considerations you'll also want to take into account to make sure that when you are spending that and when you are really doing what you want to do with that, you're not constantly second guessing yourself of saying, ah, am I really doing the right thing here? Or am I setting myself up for risk down the road by spending in this way? 
The second part of Lori's question, by the way, that first part was where most of the time was going to be committed, but let's go through the next couple parts. She says, with a secure income from pension and social security, what strategies can be used to determine the added income needed to keep pace with inflation? She then goes on to note that her pension has a one to one and a half percent cost of living adjustment each year, which means every year her pension benefit will increase by one to one and a half percent. But in years like this last one, where inflation has gone up, say 6%, just use a round number, well, even though her pension income has gone up, if she were to be retired today, her purchasing power has actually dropped by about 4.5% per year because the cost of everything that Lori and her husband want to purchase has gone up by 6%, but income's not keeping up with this. So her question is, look, at the front end, I understand that Social Security and pension will provide some cost of living adjustment, but it might not fully keep up with inflation. How do we think about our investments in light of this to ensure that even if things are good up front, we're factoring in the impact and the cost of inflation over time? And to use an example, let's just assume Lori's living expenses are $100,000 per year. And by the way, a lot of people, especially on the YouTube side, will say, why do you keep using $100,000 as this example? That's more than most retirees spend. Well, it's an easy number, and that's why. So do you only plan on spending $50,000 per year? Great. Just divide everything by two. Or do you only plan on spending $75,000 per year? Well, great. Just multiply everything by 0.75%. So use this as an example, not as a, hey, here's what most people are actually doing. Anyways, let's assume that pension and social security increase by 1.5% per year. And let's assume, like I said, that Lori and her husband's expenses are $100,000 per year. And let's also assume that the combination of pension and social security is also $100,000 per year. So all big assumptions I'm making here, just for the sake of example, And we're going to exclude taxes for a second. Well, in year one, this is very easy for Lori and her husband. Expenses are $100,000. Pension, Social Security is $100,000. So everything is met. By the way, as I'm talking about year one, I'm talking about year one after the gap years. So the first year where full pension and Social Security is coming in. So that first year, there's no need for any outside portfolio withdrawals, which when Lori looks at again is is another reason to say, look, go spend more, go do what you want with your portfolio. You don't quote unquote need it to meet your income needs. Well, then year two, let's look at what happens. Expenses were 100,000 in year one. If inflation grows by 3%, they're now 103,000. Well, pension and social security, if we're gonna assume those grow by one and a half percent, then now her income at that time is $101,500. So there's a gap of $1,500 that would need to come from outside portfolio withdrawals. By year 10, her living expenses would be $134,000 if inflation keeps growing by 3%, but her income would only be $116,000 if the income is growing by 1.5%. So now there's a need for $18,000 outside of portfolio withdrawals. By year 20, living expenses are $181,000 and income is $135,000. There's a shortfall of $46,000. So what you can see is there's this increasing shortfall, this increasing gap between how much is coming in from secure outside income sources and how much Lori and her husband are actually spending if their living expenses are increasing with inflation. Unfortunately, there's not an easy formula for this. What I do is I illustrate this in financial planning software that can very easily calculate this. If you have different pensions or social security or income sources, you can index them all at different rates of inflation. And so it gives you a very clear sense of what will that shortfall be year after year after year, and then get a cumulative effect of that over time. But there's no general rule of thumb for how much do you need to have in your portfolio to support this. 
So try using an Excel spreadsheet to calculate it, but it's going to depend upon the amount of your pension versus the amount of your social security because you probably have different cost of living adjustments. It's going to depend upon your living expenses themselves. It's going to depend upon a couple other factors. So I wish there was an easy way to just say, look, rule of thumb, here's what to keep in mind. There's not. But here's another way to look at this. In episode 68, we talked about how much do people actually spend in retirement. And what we saw is people's living expenses don't tend to go up at the same exact pace of inflation. And the reason for this is like Lori's mentioning, those first few years are the the go-go years and you're spending and you're enjoying and you're traveling. Then later on in retirement, you're settling down a little bit. You're not taking as many trips. You're not doing as many things and you're still having income come in, but you're just not spending as much. And if you look at retirements as an average, so looking at a whole bunch of different people in their entire retirement, if inflation has increased by 3% per year over the course of their retirement, then the average person's spending has only increased by 2%. Meaning their living expenses are still absolutely going up with inflation, but the amount of things they actually spend money on starts to drop. Well, why do I say that? Let's look at the blended rate of inflation for Lori and her husband looking at pension and social security. So we know the pension is about 1.5%. Let's assume that social security is 2.5%. So it mostly keeps up with inflation, but not fully. And let's also assume that over the course of the next 30 years, big assumption, just for the sake of this illustration, let's assume inflation is 3%. Well, if pension makes up half of her outside income and social security makes up half of her outside income, then the blended cost of living adjustment is 2%. That's just the difference between 1.5% on her pension and 2.5% on social security. If those both represent 50% of outside income, then the blended cost of living adjustment is 2%. Well, if inflation is in fact 3%, then Laura, you could be right in line with this research that talks about average spending and not have to worry a whole lot about how much is coming from your portfolio to offset that difference between expenses rising at a different pace than income. So I will say again, this is just an average when this research is done and talking about the average person spending increasing by 2%. But if you fall in line with that in terms of your actual spending patterns, You don't necessarily need a huge increase in amount coming in from your portfolio year after year to make up for that because your actual spending might not go up as much as inflation does over time. So just a couple ways to look at that. I know I overly simplified that for the sake of the example, but this is an alternative way of looking at it as opposed to looking at how much do I need to start taking from my portfolio to bridge that increasing gap between expenses and income coming in. All right. And the third part of Lori's question is this. She says, is there a good target balance to achieve between taxable, tax deferred and Roth accounts heading into required minimum distributions to determine Roth conversion strategies? Not really. It totally depends. And it's less about having a certain percentage in Roth accounts versus tax deferred versus taxable. It's really about understanding what your income will look like when required minimum distributions start. Because when those RMDs start, If you're a couple, so if Lori, for you and your husband, it looks like you'll have two social security benefits. You will have a pension. You will have, if you and your husband both have pre-tax accounts, you will both have required minimum distributions at that time. I don't know what the dividend and interest will look like from your non-portfolio or your non-retirement accounts if you have them, but you have to get a sense for what will that look like when we're 72? What about 80? What about 85? Because sometimes when you look at that, It's really not that big of an issue. And I I do want to make that case. I know I talk a lot about not wanting to get hit with a huge amount of taxes in the future. And sometimes people panic and they say, oh my gosh, what am I on track for? 
Well, the reality is there's a lot of people where they will have required distributions, but it's not going to bump them up into too significant of a tax bracket. It's when you look at those projections and you understand, oh my gosh, I'm going to be forced to take out more from my portfolio than I need at that time. And because of that, I'm going to be pushed into a much higher tax bracket than I should be in at that time. That's where you want to do some strategic Roth conversions. So it's not about having a third, a third, a third between taxable, tax deferred and Roth accounts. I know so much in finance is about give me some rule of thumb, give me specific numbers and we'll implement it because there's so many variables and because these variables all are so interconnected to one another, there's much more nuance in this. And so I wish there's an easy formula, but there's not. It's going to be different for everyone. In a perfect world, 100% of everything is in a Roth IRA. But the reality is that to retire and get to a place where everything gets in a Roth IRA, you're going to probably end up paying much more in taxes along the way with those conversions or contributions than you'd likely to pay if you did nothing at all and just paid taxes on your RMDs at that time. So I wish I had a better exact number that everyone should follow for this, but it really is so much more nuanced and it depends on so many different variables that it's hard to say a specific amount that each person should follow because everyone's situation is so different. So that is it for today's episode. Lori, thank you for the question. I hope that was helpful both to you and to anyone else listening who's maybe in a similar position. Once again, make sure to check us out on YouTube at Root Financial Partners, where you can find this episode as long with a whole lot more. And I'll see you all next time. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Ready for Retirement podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe and let me know by leaving a five-star review. And as always, for a list of the notes and the resources mentioned in today's episode, you can find those at the Ready for Retirement website, which is readyforretirement.co. That's readyforretirement.co. And if you have a question that you would like for me to answer in a future episode, then you can also go to the Ready for Retirement website, readyforretirement.co. There's a page called Submit Your Question where you can submit a question for me to answer in a future episode. Thanks as always for listening, and I'll see you next time. Hey everyone, it's me again for the disclaimer. Please be smart about this. Before doing anything, please be sure to consult with your tax planner or financial planner. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as investment, tax, legal, or other financial advice. It is for informational purposes only.